flash adorned my head, a dark covering of filth dirty on my scalp. Thick, tangled hairs scratched my cheek like coarse drugs, strangely comforting. Hands hung gently at my side, soiled, broken nails like swords, fresh streaks of red down my arms as I rent the cloth of my tunic. Tight fists like threads that beat purple, black, and green onto my chest. Iron finger turrets clamped a pair of inmates set deep in my skull. Eyes swollen from the blow of wind and breeze. Too little but tiny down the gray sky. Everything out of focus and unremarkable. My body is parched, muscles shriveled and limp, skin cracked like the wadis that line every valley. Even the marrow can suck out of my cavernous bones. I think I should waste away, but the Russian never stops. Perhaps another of his miracles. Tears trail wide rift down the panes of my face, a mark of my homeland etched into a thousand layers of skin. Some slime to my mouth, creating a paste like the dust that always coats my tongue. Stain is thick and repugnant by the yeast of bitterness. Lips pose like the spout of a clay jar, a creature delicate but youthful, tremulously pouring forth watery wails burst deep in my bowels. My voice joins the chorus of anguish made by the many women of this illegitimate tribe. A babe in the arms of her grandmother, neither able to be pacified. A wife and a prostitute standing as sisters. An adulteress supporting the weight of one already weakened by years of bleeding. A Sumerian's tears soaking a gallon lamb's breast. One who was possessed by demons now doubled by a stronger affliction. Some rich, many poor. All unpaid mourners weep in the sweet harmony of sorrow. A single flute accompanies our mourning song. Its high pitch slices through the humid air, giving tragedy a proper dissonance. Mingled cries produce a slow rhythm. Our bodies sway to its haunting pulse. Feet drag slowly forward in steps so heavy they could cause Jerusalem to go the way of Jericho. We follow the dusty wake of the bier, a simple pallet that bears the form of the dead form of our master, prone from a cross. Some of our brothers carry him, an excruciating weight. Many in our procession grow faint. Some stumble to their knees, chipped by grief or fatigue. Hands reach down to drag the fallen to aching, splintered feet. We must reach the tomb. The carnivorous sun, unrelenting even when death is done, waits to consume his flesh. We will give him shade and death we could not provide as much in life. The rain is sealed, but we hunker just beyond the slab. Every limb, feature, voice, twisted and marred in the expression of woe. Our bleeding continues. Perhaps it will never cease, for suffering was never so dark as now. Today, just the first of innumerable days of mourning. today is Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. By the time Jesus walked the earth, his people, the Jews, had very well developed mourning practices. Now these had been shaped by centuries of national hardship and by personal losses. And over time, their practices became tradition. And time continued, and these traditions became rituals. For the Jews, mourning was extraordinary. 
external symbolic acts of inner healing. These were things they would do with their whole body from head to toe. When a Jew heard that one of their loved ones had died, they would likely scoop a handful of dirt from the ground or ash from a fireplace and throw it on their head. They would tear their outer garment from neck to hem and cry out. And they would put on sackcloth, which would be like wearing a scratchy burlap bag. They would gather their friends and family around the corpse and they would lament loudly. They would cry out, oh, my sister, oh, my brother. In fact, the Jews had an entire week of ornate mourning ceremony. Depending on the financial situation of the particular family, they would hire professional mourners. These were women who were paid to come to their home and weep and mourn and lament. And these women would sing funeral songs, and a flute would accompany them. And oftentimes, people would write poems in tribute to the one who had died. And the longer the poem was, the more important the deceased had been. The poem that was read today by Grace, and I thank her for doing that, is a work of imagination. It's written from the perspective of a female follower of Jesus who is both a witness to his ministry and his death. And the poem is a very good example of how, for the Jews, the whole body was involved in expressing grief. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Today, we use the word grieve uh, probably a bit more than we use the word mourn, but we know these words. Most of us have experienced the death of a loved one. Now, our way of mourning may not look as dramatic or as ritualistic as it was for the Jews, but we've mourned. And I certainly hope that each of you who have mourned the loss of a loved one have experienced the comfort that God can give us in these times. Preaching through the Beatitudes is really difficult. I don't know if the other preachers are discovering this, but it's difficult because they're just one-liners. Jesus didn't follow up with these phrases with lots of stories and illustrations to help you get what he was talking about. The Beatitudes are pithy. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is pithy. Do you know what that word is? It's okay if you don't, because when I was in college, one of my professors called my writing pithy in front of my entire literary criticism class. And I had no idea what the word meant, so I didn't know if he was complimenting me or criticizing me. So I had to go home and look it up in the dictionary. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives this definition of pithy. Consisting of or abounding in pith. (laughs) It's one of those times where you really have to go to a secondary definition to understand the first. I don't know why the writers of dictionaries don't get this. But... Here's the secondary definition. That pithy means having substance and point. As we study the Beatitudes and we explore what they mean together, we will see that Jesus is the king of pith. Even when his teaching just takes one moment to say, he always has substance and point. So often when we read through the Sermon on the Mount, we get to these one-liners and we just keep moving. We take them at face value, and we allow our assumptions to interpret the text. We uh, 
you know, for the most of my life, when I read, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, I really just thought Jesus was talking about um, comforting people who were mourning the loss of a loved one. I thought, I saw this first kind of like a hug or um, passing a tissue to someone or like a squeeze on the shoulder for someone who was upset. But there's really so much more here. When I started to read the context around this beatitude in the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels, I, I uncovered this unexpected substance and point. And as I read and reflected, the Holy Spirit expanded my understanding of what this sentence means. So may I take you on a journey with me to discover the substance and point to bless are those who mourn. We really have to transport ourselves back to Jesus' day to get what he's trying to say, to get the full meaning of this beatitude. So I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. That's not just for children. We can all use our imagination. And come with me and sit down on the Galilean hillside where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Are you there? Now we have to remember, we're eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry at this point. So we know that Jesus has been baptized by John. He has been in the desert for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He's come out of that, and now he's spent the last weeks preaching to the villages and towns around the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 4.17 says that when Jesus began his public ministry, he began it by preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay, we need to pause and come back to 2013. Because for many of us who have been in the church a long time, we hear the word repentance and we think of what? Sin? Anyone? <laughs> um, for those of us, there are some of us that have wounds that are really still healing by the times where the church and its people have bashed us over the head with this idea of repentance. But pause for a minute and learn something new. The verb repent means to change your mind or to change your way of thinking. So now come back to the hillside in Galilee, and Jesus is talking. His first sermons call us to change our understanding of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 4.23 tells us that Jesus is traveling throughout Galilee, amazing the crowds with his ability to heal any disease they bring to him. And he's teaching in the synagogues, and he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we're eyewitnesses. So we have to think, what is it like to hear Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? Do uh, we disciples, or we just people, if we're in the crowd, do we swallow these words, or are they newsworthy? And if this is news, how is it good news? The key to understanding the good news of this beatitude is to jump forward a couple years to a familiar Bible story. And it's a story where there is a ton of mourning, weeping, wailing going on. So let me see if you can guess. It's a very common story. So feel free to call out the answer to these questions. Does anyone know the reference of the shortest verse in the Bible? The reference. Just call it out. Well, that, that's not the reference. But yes, this is what it says. <laughs> Jesus wept. That's, anyone know the reference? You get bonus points. <laughs> it's John 11:35. So, does anyone know the context? Like, what story was this verse in? That's right, the death of Lazarus. It's a very well-known story, and I'm going to kind of retell it for us. But while I do, I really want you to picture it 
using your imagination like you were an eyewitness. Do your best to see it with new eyes. Now, you probably heard this story before, and when you heard that Jesus wept, you may have sentimentalized the story like I used to, thinking only that Jesus is mourning the death of his good friend Lazarus. But there is greater substance and point to this story. Jesus certainly mourned here, but he was not mourning the death of Lazarus. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, go to John 11. If you're empty-handed, simply listen closely and look for what Jesus mourned. Now, this is a really long passage. It's about 57 verses. I'm not going to read them. (laughs) I'm going to tell you the story. So we're going to kind of fly over the text. But I'll, I'll drop you down on earth, and I'll give you the verses when we focus on them. So here's the context of the story. Jesus is dear friends with three siblings. Matthew? No, not Matthew. That's the book. He's friends with siblings. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they live in Bethany, which is just a couple miles east of Jerusalem. Now, the story says that Lazarus is deathly ill. So the sisters send word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus is a a couple towns away. So Jesus gets this word that Lazarus is sick, and what does he do? He turns to his disciples and he says, This sickness will not end in death. And in verse 4, he says, It is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. The story goes on to say that Jesus loved these siblings, but he stayed where he was for two more days before returning to Bethany. And after those two days, he turns to his disciples again and he says, "Uh, Lazarus has died, and so they need to go. They need to go to Bethany. And in verse 15, he says, For your sake... I'm glad that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. So they traveled to Bethany, and when they arrived, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Now, this is a significant point. For Jews, they believed that the soul of a person hovered over the body for three days after their death. And that was, in a sense, the window of opportunity for someone to come back to life. So when we're in Bethany, Picture all of these morning rituals that we talked about in the beginning going on. The songs, the flutes, the weeping, the wailing, the gathering around the body, the the poetry. Picture this going on in Bethany. Many Jews were there to comfort Mary and Martha. When Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she leaves her house and she goes out to meet him. And when she sees him, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says, well, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, yes, Lord, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That was a common belief. But Jesus said something unexpected in verses 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? Now, the text doesn't tell us, you know, how Martha responded. We have her words, but was she strong and, and, and confident? Was she doubting? You know, we don't know that. But she says, yes, I believe you are the Messiah, the one who is to come into the world. So Martha then goes back to her home, and she tells Mary that Jesus has come. 
And Mary gets up quickly, and she goes to where Jesus is. And the mourners who are gathered at her home, they think that Mary is getting up and going back to the tomb to mourn Lazarus at the tomb. So they follow her, right? Because this is a community thing. They all have to follow this family and grieve with them. When Mary gets to Jesus, she sees him and she falls in the dirt and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Jesus sees Mary weeping and the Jews that are with her weeping. And in verse 33, it says that Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He asks, where have you laid him? And they say, come and see. And the text simply says in verse 35, Jesus wept. Now there's two reactions of the crowd of mourners that are there. Some people see Jesus crying and say, see how much he loved Lazarus. But others who are gathered, maybe a little bitter, a little resentful, and they say, well, if this guy could heal a blind man, you think he could have prevented Lazarus' death. And presumably, from the text, Jesus overhears this. And the text says again, Jesus is once again deeply moved. This is a hugely emotional passage. How many of you read the Bible and you don't pick up on the emotions? This one's hard to miss. It's one of only two gospel passages where Jesus cries. But this scene isn't as simple as it reads in English. What we can't see unless we consult the original Greek is that John uses two different verbs here for weeping. John assigns the Greek verb klio to describe the emotional release of the Jews of Mary and Martha. And this verb means to mourn, to weep, or to lament. But when John describes Jesus' emotional release, he uses a different verb, zakruo, which literally means that Jesus began to shed tears. John is deliberately differentiating the grief in this passage. He's showing simply that Jesus did not mourn like the others did. Verse 33 gives us more insight into what's going on with these emotions. My translation says Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. You can check and see what yours says. It's a hard uh, sentence to translate. This is really just two verbs. The first verb is translated deeply moved in spirit. It's fairly common. And this verb is from a root word that signified the snort of a horse. And um, when this verb in other places in Scripture is used in an active sense instead of a passive sense like it is here, when it's used actively, it's translated strongly warned or rebuked. So this verb carries a sense of anger. The second verb in this verse for which my translation gives uh, the word troubled is literally agitated or stirred up. Have you ever read this story and pictured anything other than Lazarus, or excuse me, Jesus, mourning for Lazarus' death? Have you ever imagined Jesus outside of Lazarus' tomb stirred up? And yet that's what the text is telling us. So this begs the question, what was Jesus stirred up about, right? Well, the clues are all over this story, and you don't have to know a lick of Greek to get them. So let's look back at verses 4, 15, 25, 26. Let's line them up on the screen and see uh, what the point of this whole story is. And we'll add verses 40 and 42, even though we haven't read them. So let's throw them all up there if we can. Keep going. 
Anyone catching the theme here? The theme of this whole story is belief. Do you understand that Jesus orchestrated this whole event so that people would believe he is the Son of God? Do you get that he delayed his return to Bethany knowing Lazarus would die so that he could go to Bethany and call Lazarus back to life and prove to the crowds that he had divine power? Jesus was foreshadowing a time when death would no longer have control over life, no power. Jesus was trying to open the people's eyes to this heavenly kingdom where there's eternal life. Remember when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This truth is the comfort for those who mourn. Now go back to the scene in Bethany. Look at the tears on Jesus' face. Take in the crowd of mourners weeping and wailing. The Jews who've been waiting for their king and Messiah for centuries, they are too busy weeping over Lazarus to recognize the king before them. Jesus stood outside the tomb of his beloved friend and mourned not because Lazarus had died, but because of the unbelief of the people he came to save. What does a guy have to do to get people to believe who he is? What does Jesus have to do to get people to believe that the kingdom of heaven had come near? And what other miracles did he need to perform before they would believe that he is the Son of God, their prophesied Messiah? I mean, by this time, Jesus has already turned water into wine. He has healed every sickness and disease they brought him. He's cast out demons. He's fed a crowd of thousands with five small loaves and two small fish. He's walked on water. He's calmed storms with his voice, and they still don't believe. By the time Jesus gets to Bethany, not even his disciples or Mary and Martha expect Jesus to do more than mourn because it's too late. Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. But then, Jesus does the unimaginable. Jesus yells for Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and he emerges alive. Here is physical proof. Jesus is the resurrection. This miracle called all witnesses to repent to change their understanding of a final reality from death and mourning to life and rejoicing. This miracle is an iconic moment. It changes the course of people's lives. John 11:45 says that many of the Jews who had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Some people came to faith because they, they saw that Jesus enacted the kingdom of God. They caught on to a vision of a kingdom in which death is not the inevitable end. Death is suddenly a doorway, and belief is the key to a kingdom where death has no sting. This, this Bible, this is the greatest story ever told, and it's nonfiction. This story about the raising of Lazarus is a critical arc in God's bigger story. And when you read John 11, do you see that this story foreshadows the climax of the whole Bible, which is Jesus' death and resurrection? 
Jesus' death on the cross is the final battle for human souls. I love the way it's put in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus' resurrection, then, is God's victory cry. It's the kingdom of heaven's trumpet blast heard round the world. If we read, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And only think that it means we'll be comforted when someone uh, we love dies. We don't get the full substance or the point. Comfort comes with the knowledge that death doesn't have to be our fate. Eternal life is on the table. When Jesus preached this beatitude, he was inviting people to live into the reality of the kingdom of heaven. He knew that death would no longer be the end. He knew how much his father loved the world. And because of that love, Jesus would die so that that we would no longer be slaves to our fear of death, so that we could have access to eternal life. Jesus called all people to repent, to change their way of thinking about the kingdom that surrounds them. He urged them to see the reality of the kingdom of God, which leads to eternal life. He called them to repent of the kingdoms of Rome and Herod and Phariseeism, of any kingdom whose banner is power, wealth, prestige, or self-idolization. Because all of these kingdoms pass away. For those who could see the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of earth, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who mourned physical death and pledged allegiance to the kingdom of heaven would be comforted when they learned that death is not the end. And those who mourned, they mourned life under the thumbs of the little kingdoms and the little kings that surrounded them. Those whose souls cried out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Those mourners, with through Christ, experienced the justice, mercy, grace, and salvation offered in the kingdom of God. A good man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a good book called The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich wrote this about our Beatitudes for today. While the world keeps holiday, the disciples stand by. And while the world sings, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, the disciples mourn. They see that for all the jollity on board, the ship is beginning to sink. The world dreams of progress, of power, and the future, but the disciples meditate on the end, the last judgment and the coming of the kingdom, and so the disciples are strangers in the world. We disciples may be strangers in this world, but the kingdom of God is real, and it's something we can live into. Even though we walk on earth, we can repent and live into the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we can't see this kingdom like we could see birds flying or the sun rising. And I know that it is hard to change your worldview and your allegiance when a kingdom isn't something, a tangible object. It's not that. You can't see it. You can't touch it. 
Repentance is a difficult call to follow. That's why even when people saw proof of Jesus' miracles, many did not believe. In fact, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews ran off to Jerusalem, told the Pharisees, and began plotting how to kill Jesus. The kingdom Jesus preached and enacted threatened the very world order everyone knew. It threatened their understanding of reality. Even the disciples struggled to repent. Even they weren't fully convinced. When Jesus was crucified, most of his followers abandoned him. They didn't get that the miracle in Bethany was foreshadowing the miracle on Golgotha. Only a few faithful women remained to prepare Jesus' body and to mourn him. And even they, their grief overcame their memories of a rabbi who taught them, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. This beatitude is a call for all disciples to repent, to change our way of thinking about the world around us and the way we live. We can live conscious that we are no longer slaves to the fear of death. We can live in a spirit of assurance and gratitude because we know that physical death is a doorway to eternal life with God. Mourning should not be the ritual for which we are known as it was for the Jews. Instead, we should be wrapped up in worship. Let's be so full of praise for what God has done for us that people are drawn to us. Let's be people known for rejoicing in the good news that we have received. Jesus is risen. He is alive, and he is reigning over the kingdom of heaven. And when we worship God alone or together, we draw on his comfort and love. We fill our tanks with grade A kingdom of heaven fuel. And this worship fuels us to spread the good news to our family and our friends, our coworkers, and our strangers. Blessed are those who believe in and worship Jesus, for they will give comfort to the world. Will you stand with me as we give thanks to God in prayer? Lord, we deeply thank you for what you have offered us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Because he died and rose again, we can live with you forever. We thank you. We ask you to forgive us those times where we live opposite of gratitude and opposite of worship and opposite of praise, where we get wrapped up in our own grief and our mourning, and and we forget that this is not the end that this life can continue if we believe in Jesus Christ. And so we pray for those that we know and love that do not know this message. God, would you give us courage to spread this good news, to turn to our neighbors and our loved ones and to strangers and say, God bless you because God has offered you another way, that death is not the end. It is a doorway to eternal life with him. We thank you for this message. Amen.